This is Across the Street, Across the Country, a production of DKI Canada. Welcome to the program. My name is Denny Gringell. Hey, have you ever gotten a suspect email with a questionable attachment or a link, maybe even one that seemed to come from a friend or a colleague, and it turned out to not be a real email, but something nefarious that if you had clicked when you should have deleted, it could have led to an all-out crash of your work's computer system? Actually, maybe the real question there is, when did you last get such an email? Because experts will tell you that being cyber attacked is really just a matter of when, not if. Hey, maybe if you have a great backup system and a great IT specialist to get you back online, you'll be fine. But maybe, likely, you'll also need a legal specialist. We'll tell you why in part two in our series on cybersecurity. This is Across the Street, Across the Country. In part one in our series on cybersecurity, we spoke with Sarah Wellman, an IT professional who specializes in preventing cyber attacks and also dealing with their aftermath should one occur. Sarah addressed the technical part of that aftermath because the aftermath, once a computer system has been hacked, typically also involves a legal component. And sometimes that legal component involves negotiating with the perpetrators to restore the computer system. That too is coordinated by lawyers who specialize in cyber attacks. Lawyers like Katerina Duke, Katerina is an associate at Norton Rose Fulbright Canada LLP, recognized as one of the best law firms in the world for cybersecurity response, specializing in privacy and technology. She joins me now from her office in downtown Toronto. Katerina, thanks so much for making time for the program. Oh, I'm very excited to be here. Thank you, Denise. Hey, when we were coordinating via email to set up this conversation, you had suggested a time that I would have thought was well after hours, even for busy lawyers. And, and your response was something to the effect of, well, these kinds of cases don't exactly work within a normal workday schedule. I, I was hoping you could elaborate on that a bit more to give us an appreciation of the landscape when it comes to cyber attacks right now. Sure, absolutely. Um, so yeah, we very much work outside of kind of your standard nine to five hours. Um, for us, generally, we find that cyber attacks are often happening kind of on high holidays or over weekends and going into the family long weekend here, you know, we're, we're expecting to see more. And the reason for that is that, you know, they're trying to catch you off guard. They have extra time in your system to do what they want to do. And, you know, potentially taking advantage of people's kind of headspaces being somewhere else. And so it really is an opportunistic time for them to start making these attacks, you know, again, on weekends, on high holidays. And so those are, you know, often the hours we work around understanding that 
you know, Monday morning or even Sunday, we're going to, we're going to have a few new incidents trickling in as a result of that. You know, you kind of tiptoe into the weekend, very, very, very mindful of your phone and what's happening. And uh, yeah, we're, you know, essentially it's on call to be ready for anything that comes up, you know, even going into, you know, over the holiday season, our entire team, we've a large team got together and we were kind of like, who's here? Who can we triage? Who do we know is going to be available? Because we know that's our busy time. You know, we we anticipate it. We also kind of have an idea of when to expect a slower period of time. Kind of wondering more so when will those calls really start trickling in. Often the actual ransomware will be deployed kind of over the weekend. And that's kind of when your system will be locked up and you can't see things. So it's waiting to see whether or not the organization is watching and get some form of alert that we need to be aware of or whether we're going to get calls, you know, Monday morning, Tuesday morning, whenever they come in and people to who kind of first identify it. And it's not to limit it to weekends or high holidays. It can happen, of course, anytime. But we do, you know, see a higher tendency after that those periods of times. Well, I want to get into what, what your role is as a lawyer and, and, and with a law firm. But can you tell me when you realized that the kind of law you're practicing, for lack of a better expression, was now a growth industry dealing specifically with this portfolio? Yeah, you know what? I, I think by the time when I started coming into it, 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 it was clear to me that it was going to be a growth industry. You know, even being in law school, we we had a course that was actually on privacy and cybersecurity, and it was it was new. I think it had been around for a couple of years, and so at that point, we knew it was going to be a new area. You know, quite frankly, it, it sounded really cool. Someone tells you, you know, there's a there's a hacker, and you're like, whoa, I'm dealing with that instead of, you know, I don't know, a construction issue, breach of contract, you know, full gambit of things. So coming into it, I, I knew I was going to be a growing industry. When clients call you and they say they've been hacked, what's their most pressing concern in, in terms of the law and their liability after they've talked to their IT person? They're on the phone with you and they say, Katerina, this has to be fixed. What, what is that this? It's hard to kind of narrow it down, but their operations. For most organizations, when you've had some form of cybersecurity attack, it's so apparent to the outside world that this has happened. And it's, you know, not a matter of if people will find out, but it's when they'll find out. You can't get your deliveries out or follow up on any kind of project deadlines. And you're like, oh, I don't have access to your invoices. All of those things, you know, they're going to trickle out and people are going to learn that an incident has happened. And it happens rather quickly, but the concern is really, what do I tell my clients? What do I tell people that are impacted? And, you know, of course, am I going to get sued as a result of this? So what we tell them is you're not going to be judged because you've had a cyber incident. It's how you respond to the incident that's key. And so, and that's why our role is so paramount. You know, we guide people through the process to make sure that they have an accurate really effective breach response that shows their customers, regulators, that they've taken all the steps they need to do to protect the information to the best of their ability and respond to it in an appropriate way. What should be their first concern with their clients, their staff, or the public when you're guiding them through that? It really depends. I, I don't think there's um, an either or. I think when it happens, I think you're kind of like a little flubber ball popping off everything, thinking of all the concerns at once. In some circumstances, some of those concerns are going to be more apparent than others. For example, if um, come Tuesday morning when the long weekend's over, you may have employees coming to their desks trying to log on and they're going to see a ransom note and that's going to cause a lot of alarm. 
And so in those instances, the company may say, oh my God, all of our employees have now seen this ransom note. What do we do? Because then it, you know, everything escalates. And so that's a big concern. But also if depending on the structure of your business, if it's not super clear to your employees based on, you know, the structure of your organization, but you know, your your website is down or you can't provide a service of some sort and clients are calling in, you, you need to triage what that messaging looks like. You, you have to be able to you know, you don't want your employees to be talking to people and kind of spitballing what may have happened or speculating. Of course, we hate the speculation element of it. And so, you know, you really have to have a, a streamlined communication plan that's going to address all of those stakeholders that need to be, you know, made aware of the incident and based on what you can tell them on what you know at that time. Much like the IT people out there who say, let's let's try and prevent this from happening. Does that happen from uh, from lawyers as well? Will you gather some of your clients and say, look, you haven't been attacked yet, but we need to map out a plan? Oh, legal- absolutely. Okay. So tell me about that plan. Are, are you in a room with them going, if this happens, you need to do this, this, this? I, I just, I'd be curious. I want to be a fly on the wall and <laughs> without you telling me too much, obviously. Yeah, no, of course. So yeah, especially with cyber attacks becoming so prevalent. You know, not only do we respond to breaches, but we assist clients in preventing breaches. And we're so how to respond to a breach if and when that happens inevitably. And so that takes many forms. Sometimes it's reviewing an organization's incident response plan and putting in um, our views on what's missing, what they what they should be doing, what looks good, what doesn't look good. And other times it's actually, you know, going to a client's office, sitting down and running a fake simulation saying, you get this ransom note, what do you do next? And you go through this, like I said, simulation. So people kind of get their first taste of it. It's definitely a a big thing that clients are asking for and certainly something that we encourage. Even if they have done a a prep scenario and they call you and say, it's all on our computers, there's a great big flashing ransomware there, there's going to be a sense of panic. How do you talk them down from that to bring them to a point where it's like, okay, now we need to, to deal with this from a legal standpoint? Quite frankly, it it's our experience and our confidence. You know, I think in those situations, people are exactly that. You're panicking and you have somebody who comes in who's done this hundreds of times, thousands of times, and they say, okay, here's our game plan. This is what we're going to do first. And you, you know, essentially we have a list of all the things that need to get done and an order that we're going to work through it on. And we, we take away a lot of the concern. We say, here's what we need to be aware of. Here's a communications package that you'll have. So you don't have to worry about that. You know, one of the first things we do is get a forensic team involved because they're going to be the ones that can, you know, understand truly from a technical nature what's going on to um, isolate and then get rid of the threat actor to make sure that the ongoing unauthorized activity doesn't continue. This may be a delicate, well, it is a delicate topic, I'm sure. But when when you're going through those forensics, I'm sure you can often isolate it and narrow it down to, okay, person X, Y, or Z over there, they're responsible for this. They clicked onto that link or that attachment. What can you tell them as a lawyer, if that person is identified? And frankly, if I were that person who was, because that person may be a bit reluctant to, to divulge what happened and slow down the whole process. Yeah. And you know what? I, I think it just, it really depends. Um, I think people would be, I think when it happens, people are very embarrassed. You know, there's so much knowledge out there and it's just, oh, I should have known better. I've been trained. It was so obvious. But the reality is, is, you know, 
people do it all the time. So there, there, there's no fear. I'm just wondering if I were that person, should I be afraid yeah. that I, I might get charged or sued in any way? Or is it, it it's such a new thing in many yeah. ways. I mean, I think it very much depends on the circumstances. I, right now, an employer coming down on you because you clicked efficient link, I, I don't think that would go over very well at all. And, you know, it, it's human error, to be frank, if you have, if it's a, if you have some type of cybersecurity incident and the way that the threat actor got into your system is through a phishing email, it's actually a, a, a very understanding way of having let this happen. You know, there's other ways that aren't as good. You know, it's not a positive narrative if you've had, say, something that's been unpatched, something you've missed that you should have been on top of. That's not a great story to tell people. But hey, I fell for this phishing or employee fell for this phishing link. It happens to everybody at some point. When it happens once, people are on high, high alert and they're very cautious of the email process moving forward. And we kind of have jokes amongst our group that we're very nervous about it. And so, you know, sometimes it'll be, and you know, a colleague sends you a gift card and you're kind of like, or is this phishing? Like, what are they going to do? <laughs> it has it, absolutely. It has put us all a little bit on high alert and, and and hyper anxious. But it is good to know that for the most part, that employee shouldn't have to be worried about being charged or being thrown in jail for for what could be human error. Yes, that that would be very very extreme in my view. I'm wondering about that letter that has to go out to the public. You're an institution or you're a business. Uh, whether it's chapters or you're a hospital, and you've got to draft that note out to the public to say, this is what happened. It could be affecting our business and it will likely affect you. How much care goes in to to drafting that letter from a legal standpoint? I mean, it is, it is very important on many fronts. So for one, the information contained in the letter is set out in legal requirements. You know, there's certain information you have to explain, you know, when did the breach occur? What are you doing to respond to it? Who can people contact if they have a question? So there's some items in there that are legislatively were required to provide in that letter. So individuals you know, know what to do when they receive that letter. But a lot of the letter is kind of accurately portraying what has happened. So, and that's where the crafting comes in because you're going to get different reactions when an incident has happened and it's going to vary from individual to individual. So some organizations may just say, you know, we've had, we're locked out, something terrible happened. You know, we have all this type of data. We're so sorry this happened. Tell everyone. And we want to say, hey, take a step back. We need to go through a forensic investigation and see what has actually happened. Just because your system has been compromised in some way doesn't mean that sensitive data that you're worried about has also been compromised. And, and so we like to prevent that or even the flip side, people being so nervous that they've had an incident that they're not um, they're not being forthcoming or they're being a little bit misleading about what has happened. And I don't think that's intentional by any means. I think it's just kind of if you're just being protective of your information until you have the facts to the extent we can, we try not to put that message out because if you come out with a you know a half answer, it just invites more questions. Yeah, there is quite a bit of work that goes into those letters, but only only because we want to have an accurate picture of what has actually happened. And, you know, there's certain things that you don't want to commit to unless you can confirm that. And so if um, if a company, for example, retains credit card information, they like to assure people right away, like, hey, no credit card information was impacted. And before you say that, you have to be very, very sure that that system was untouched 
whether it's encrypted on so many, you know, to such a degree that we're comfortable with it, or whether it just simply the threat actor, which also known as the hacker, simply just didn't touch the system where it resides. So there's there's a lot of things that we look for that um, are important to communicate properly in those letters. And it's new territory. Let's face it. This is something that most businesses have probably never done before and, and hopefully will never again. Yeah. Um, and it's a, it's normally a one-time thing for businesses. So <laughs> yeah, we all hope if the victim is at that point of having to negotiate with the hackers and, and the ransomware to restore their system, what is your role? What we do is when an incident, I'll just kind of take it back to the very beginning. So when you have an incident, often you're going to have, along with your system, if it's ransomware, your system will essentially, there's going to be encryption and it renders your system inaccessible, or at least what systems have been encrypted at that point. And so you'll often have a ransom note that says you've been hacked. Um, we've taken, you know, approximately this many gigabytes of data and they'll tend to outline what type of data they've taken. And it's not always true. Um, oh. It's kind of like a standard form letter. So, so, so there say, are there are bluffs out there as well. Oh, absolutely. Yes. We're dealing with criminals here. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. E even when you get the ransom note and they talk about, you know, we've taken this many gigabytes, we query whether they actually did, you know, and that's a big part of the forensic investigation is trying to determine that they actually get that amount of data and, and what they've actually said they've taken. So yeah, the ransom note absolutely have to take with a grain of salt. And it, it'll typically provide some form of contact information. Sometimes it's an email. Um, sometimes it's a link to a website. Often it's a link to the onion router that is, we call the dark web to be able to contact the threat actor. And so what we do as legal counsel is if a decision is made to reach out to the hacker, we will engage somebody who is able to do that. So it's not me in there negotiating with a hacker. We hire a third party vendor to do that. And those are individuals that are you know highly trained in dealing with these types of incidents. And so they learn the threat actors' personalities, their structure, what they're used to, how to negotiate with them. They are truly the experts on knowing how to respond and manage those communications. Is that all done via email or are they actually speaking to the uh, the criminals at that point? Sometimes it's done through email, but kind of just like a, an open messaging stream on the dark web on that threat actors leak site. So it opens up a separate communication channel. They may pick up a phone and call you and it's it's just a scare tactic for them. Hmm. So when you're shopping, for lack of a better word again, for that negotiator, what are you looking for when you're, I, I just wonder if you're stepping back and going, okay, this is that kind of a, a criminal, that kind of hacker. We need to go with that negotiator because that, nego is that am I making a, a big Hollywood-like leap there <laughs> that you're picking and choosing who works best with what hacker? Um. What we do is we generally work with a couple of different vendors. I mean, it's such a huge space. There's always new players in the game. Um, but there's certain vendors that we're familiar with. And, you know, we've had really good success with them. And they're known for being leaders in the industry and dealing with these types of things. And so, you know, we really do lean on them. A really good example is after with the Ukraine war, we found a big a very large threat actor group actually separated. And with that, you got all these kind of fraction groups coming out. And so we didn't know who was who. 
And so when we reached out to negotiators at that point and we're like, hey, have you heard of Yellow Door Ransomware or whatever other (laughs) ransomware you want to come up with? Yellow Door is something I just made up off the top of my head. (laughs) Now Um, now it's going to become popular. Don't be surprised. Yeah, and I'm concerned (laughs) (laughs) getting calls about Yellow Door here. Um, What we wanted to understand is, you know, we don't know if it's a new group. We don't necessarily know how they respond. We know generally how threat actors operate. But when you hire a negotiator and they have some familiarity, it's not even, it's not only that they can reach out to their colleagues in the industry to understand it, it's that as they're communicating with the threat actor, they can read the temperament and they have the ability to recognize what we refer to as TTPs, which are tactics, techniques, and procedures, typically seen in the forensic investigation. But you see strategies and you're familiar with them and you link it back to previous cases you've worked on. How likely are the uh, the cyber attackers to get everything they're asking for? I'm just curious about that actual negotiation process. It really depends on the temperament at the time. I, I've seen it go in many ways. I've seen, you know, I've I've been through periods of time in ransomware where the demands you would get significant discounts on them. Significant. Really? How come? Yes. Yeah. What would you attribute that to? Kindheartedness, maybe, or (laughs) certainly not that. Um, Threat actor success, I I think, is really it. And some found that they were taking too much of a hit, and so they stopped discounting it. The time that you've been negotiating can certainly impact it. But um, like, if it's dragging out for too long, they're going to say, "Hey, we just want to move on to our next case." Like, sure, we'll take this discount. But sometimes, I mean, if a threat actor knows they've really got you you know they know they've got your super sensitive information they know you're a very say public company or you know and they know you can afford it i mean one of the things they do is they look up the company try and find their financial records and that's how they'll typically set up what the ransom demand is and so they'll place the value on it so every situation is different i've at least never had a case where someone said hey we want a million and the person went here's a million, you know, there, there's always a negotiation process. You know, if the success of that is only a 10%, 15% discount, then, you know, it's sometimes that's the best you can do. It, it depends on so many factors. Hmm. A lawyer's favorite answer, it depends. But <laughs> well, it's okay. You're not the only industry that would say that. Cause I, and I think it, in this particular case, it's certainly applicable. This is something I asked Sarah I- as well. For the person who runs the smaller business with a staff of, you know, 15, 20, 30, 40 people, and that person says, I'm not worried about this. I'm I'm not a big player. I'm not an institution. I don't have that much money. Nobody's coming after me. What would you tell them? I mean, that's common. We deal with that all the time. And um, yeah, we deal with all, all sizes of clients. And I, I think some people take what I'll, I guess I'll refer to as a very pragmatic approach. And they say, you know what? These are happening left, right, and center. We got hit this time. We have counsel. We know how to respond to it. So not every ransom is going to be for a million or even a quarter million dollars. You'll get the, do you get them at smaller amounts, like 10, 15, $20,000? Yes, absolutely. I mean, not, not as common, but we certainly do. And there's going to be, there's threat actor groups for kind of across the board. Some people will find a vulnerability and that's what they, you know, that's going to be their bread and butter is hitting that vulnerability. And so when they find that they're going to charge every individual $5,000. And it's, you know, the, the smaller quantum, but they're they're going after a large volume of organizations where you're going to have other people doing the opposite and they're going to spend 
months trying to figure out how to get into somebody's system, when they get that opportunity, you know, an employee clicks a phishing email and they're in, they know they've got them. You know, I, I have a few cases right now where it's very, very almost nominal amounts of a ransom demand. Hmm. And in those cases, you know, depending, it's always about the criticality of the data. But in those cases, sometimes people want to say, whatever, I'll just pay it, it'll make everything go away. Actually, even with large ransom demands, people think that, you know, if I pay the threat actor, all of this goes away. And our, our big point is, you know, no, it doesn't. You, Regardless of whether or not you pay a threat actor, you, you, your legal obligations essentially remain the same. In your expert opinion here, Katerina, as someone who's been living this, and this is really your industry now, where do you think this is all headed? Not in a direction people are excited for, <laughs> to be frank. I think we're all kind of moving along this together. And threat actors are just getting more and more sophisticated. So as we develop software and antivirus scans and we're, you know, training our employees properly and developing policies, as all of these steps are being done, threat actors are also, they're bettering their techniques that they're doing so that they can infiltrate systems that are being hardened by these organizations. And so it's really attacks are just going to continue to be getting more and more sophisticated. Hi, I'm Katerina Duke. I'm an associate at Norton Rose Fulbright, practicing in the Information Governance, Privacy, and Cybersecurity Group. And you're listening to Across the Street, Across the Country. You can reach lawyer and cybersecurity expert Katerina Duke via NortonRoseFulbright.com. They are leaders in cybersecurity. You can reach us by going to dki.ca. DKI Canada provides services to insurance, commercial, and residential clients from coast to coast. Whether it's an emergency response, water damage mitigation, fire and contents cleaning, mold remediation, or a complete reconstruction, DKI members are available 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. If you're ever in need of emergency assistance, the number is 1-855-DKI-TODAY. That's 1-855-354-2322. Daryl James of Close Kicks wrote and produced the theme music you hear on our show. Find them at closekicks.com. DKI Canada actively contributes to creating a better future through environmental protection and social responsibility. Focused on leaving things better than DKI found them. DKI is committed to using environmentally sustainable cleaning products and mitigating risk in environmentally sustainable ways. You can subscribe to Across the Street, Across the Country for free on your favorite streaming platform. And please consider rating us. That way, other people will find us much more easily. My name is Denny Gringell. Looking forward to bringing you a brand new episode in about two weeks. Talk to you then. Talk to you then.